This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Bellacatering.com.au, one of the best catering companies in Sydney, but in the time of COVID, in this garbage, fire, doom scrolling, the world is ending as we know it. Year of 2020 has meant that this terrific and awesome family catering company led by Glenna Maria, who I love and adore, um, has pivoted to home delivery. So if you want while you're in New South Wales, while you're in the Sydney area, if you want great home cooked feeling, delicious catering to your home, Bella Catering is where you got to go. They're absolutely amazing. They have a variety of cuisines. They're incredible. Bellacatering.com.au is where you can dial them up, find them, order something. Hell order before the second wave gets here. And order seconds for the second wave. They're the best. Thank you for listening. We have a banger of a week for you. Now, onto the show. Like Woodward and Bernstein, Dustin and I couldn't have been more opposite. Mr. Redford. It's <laughs> <laughs> been too long. One of the things that you, I remember you telling me was that you had trouble, even you at that time, had trouble getting a studio to say yes because oh, yeah. they all said, we know the ending, so why should we do right. all the presidents? They said, why would we do this when we know what the outcome is? I said, well, this, it's not what the story's about. It's about the two guys. That's right. And what they did that nobody knew about. And, and you the, said it was a detective story. Detective story yes. that, and, and but the main thing, I mean, and, and I think the, you felt the same way, was the, the alchemy of the two guys, considering their differences. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a person in a crop of people who are probably some of the most talented writers about film online. Um, she's a senior editor at Brightwell Darkroom, and... Before I talk about her or introduce one of her pieces, I'm just going to read out some of the films that she's covered on the show because it's absolutely staggering just how many of them are good and ones that I like. Uh, 20th Century Women, Knives Out, Shirley, The Skin I Live In. Holy shit, what a piece that is. Uh, Raw, Personal Shopper, the entire Fargo series, Manchester by the Sea. Rear window. I mean, if that's not enough, when we're talking about a show that is exceptionally intent on making things authentic and really, you know, being in essence a docudrama, I wanted to read you just a couple of words from this person before we start talking about Fargo, which I think is really funnily aligned to all the president's men. They don't find answers, they won't just like they won't come to understand the motives behind the deaths that pile up, the bodies that fall and the violence born from blindness. It's enough to survive. Turn the criminal in and then go home. You're pregnant. Your husband's panting was accepted. Her painting rather was accepted for a three cent stamp, retire from the force, open a coffee shop, deliver mail, have children, take care of what's yours, be a good man, a good woman, whatever that means. And I feel like just do enough to survive is probably what, uh, it's not the lionized vision that maybe these guys had in all the president's men, but I think it's kind of what it's come to be now that we're in 2020. It's my real great pleasure to have Kelsey Ford join me for all the president's minutes. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, thank you so much for that. It's very nice intro. Well, you're welcome. I was just going through some of your great stuff and I was like, you've written about so many of the things that I love. <laughs> I was like, she's written about so many of the pieces I've read on Brightwell over this year. This has got your name attached to it. And it was a, only a, um, a, a tweet um, about some Robert Redford thirst that really brought us together, which is part of what I, I, why I really wanted you on the show. But um, <laughs> you're, you're, I, I think that for anyone who doesn't, anyone who's not on the film Twitter community or anyone who's not active online, you may not have heard of some the site Brightwell Darkroom, but you know they've been going since about 2011 and they are really, really, one of the best independent film sites that is out there. And anyone who would know that my internet husband, Travis Woods, who is the host of Increment Vice is uh, often writing florid prose about Richard Gere in Breathless on the site um, and many other examples of, uh, you know, trash art cinema. Um, 
and he's great inherent bias article um but uh <laughs> but true. but but it's it's just simply one of the best places and so i feel like anytime i'm talking to one of you guys i'm talking to one of my people and you will always have a good take on whatever we're <laughs> going to talk about yeah so, i feel really lucky to to get to work with them um so much because so much of the time um our editor-in-chief chad will just be like hey i want to write this thing and he's like yeah you do you you do your things and when you have it and i think that having that kind of you know room to play in is pretty beneficial for a site like that. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the other thing is um, there are certain sites and like really great publications that you have great people write for that. It takes them a while before the site kind of allows their voice to really bloom. And once they have, you know, you think of something like a, I don't know, like almost anywhere, you know, some of the great writers of our time, like I think of like a Tennessee Coates, like everywhere Tennessee Coates writes, it's his like voice. There is no, there's no doubting that, um, you know, like for example, there's a couple of alums of the Brightwell Dark Room site, like Roxana Haddadi, I really love, who's been on this show, Angelica J. Bastian. It's like some of those guys, when they write with your site, Lindsay Romaine, um, you, you hear their voice almost more than you do sometimes at other publications. Cause they kind of get like, there's a style that they have to ultimately incorporate. But that's, I think what I love about Brightwell is that if you read yourself, if you then read Fran Hoffner, if you then read um, Travis, mm-hmm. if you then read Ethan, if you're then bouncing around to the, the whole collective or the new writers that join you, um, the, each piece is very much in that voice. And so that's sometimes what I, if I read the people that I really love and they're writing for a new publication, it might be a bigger one that sort of squashes their voice. I almost can't read it. I almost say, no, I can't, I can't do this. It's not, it's not them. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, there's something uncompromising about that with you guys, which is, is really great. Yeah. I mean, that it's so good to hear that that's how it's received because I think it's definitely how we feel about it, you know, quote unquote in house in our Slack channel. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good community to be a part of for sure. Now, I know that what started our dialogue was some Robert Redford thirst, but I wanted to just, mm-hmm. ki- I wanted to kick off and ask all the president's men, is this a, is this a movie that's been on rotation? What's your relationship to the movie? And even like new Hollywood, because when I look back at so much of your stuff, um, the, the style of movies that sort of intersect with your interests, I'm like, there's so much that I personally have in common with what you're writing about or, or have, an, have an affinity for or have an affection for the, the content that you're writing about. So I'm really interested to hear, you know, what your thoughts are on all the presidents, all the presidents then. Yeah, I was joking with a friend the other day, um, how I feel like my like film beat is um, sad, creepy women, which <laughs> isn't all the presidents men. <laughs> so, so that tends to be my Venn diagram. And honestly, I didn't watch the film until last Christmas Eve. Um, I forced my, it, it had been on my radar for a long time, but I think it's one of those things where it just felt like too much or like I didn't have the space to really watch it. So I, I forced my family to watch it last Christmas Eve and then we watched it this last week, getting ready for this. Um, and I think my relationship is very much through other people in a way, like one of my best friends, it's her favorite book, it's her favorite movie, you know, and I, like a lot of my other very good friends feel the same way. So I yes. was almost watching it to like have a conversation with them <laughs> a little bit. Like even yes. if we didn't talk about it, I wanted to like have that um, shared language. Uh, yeah, I like guess. I'm finally in the club, guys. I, I saw it. I saw it. We <laughs> yeah. can now actually have this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's funny. So, so now that you saw it, when you saw it on Christmas Eve, I love that you sat down with the family and you watch it. What was your initial impression? Like was it like, oh my God, what, what the hell was I waiting for? Or was it something like uh, – how, how did it fly on that Christmas Eve? I'm glad to hear that you watched it again. So that's, that's. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I wonder, I, um, because I think that there's so much about the movie that has been kind of reused in a lot of ways, like not just yes. the story, but also like the, you know, um, like I'm thinking like spotlight and the post specifically, just like working in a newsroom and what it takes to get the story. Um, so I don't think I really connected with it. And also I should, I should complain and say I had a big fight with my family on that Christmas Eve. So it was kind of like my way of getting back at them was like, it's Christmas Eve. I'm mad at you. So I'm going to put on this two and a half hour film. Um, so I, I don't think I was Love super that. in the right headspace to watch it the first time. You should have put the skin um, I live in on instead. 
really messed it up. All right, guys, we're doing a double feature. We're doing um, Old Boy mm-hmm. and we're doing by Park Chan-wook and we're doing The Skin I Live In. So how do yeah. you like them apples? <laughs> yeah, ne- next fight for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, um, it's really difficult sometimes and, you know, you have those very early experiences when you see something and, and, and it actually comes up in, a, in an episode that's not too far away now. I've talked about it a couple of times because we recorded it some time ago um, with Matt Zoller's Heights where he, we, we talk about um, the, the concept of psycho, like the idea of psycho and, and even the idea of deep throat. Um, so many people experience those things and, and, and the idea of all, mm-hmm. um, one flower of the cuckoo's nest. My first engagement with those pieces of art was the Simpsons. And is so many people's engagement with the, those art forms because you're like, here's Smithers in an underground garage smoking a cigarette. Like I'd never seen all the president's men before I saw that, nor the, <laughs> nor the, um, Homer falling down in the shower and, and everything like that. And you don't, you have no concept of how much that that's going to impact you that you've seen it through the Simpsons and just happens with everything. It's like the, if you, if you weren't lucky enough to see Pulp Fiction really kind of 1994, 95, like when it came out and then watched the next almost four years of movies that were produced in the United States in, in sort of an independent crime scene, you know, sorry, independent crime sense, everything is borrowing liberally ripping off tweaking trying to do their own version of what tarantino was doing and so by the time i imagine that you get back to pulp fiction you're like oh i've seen all of this and he in essence that movie has seen other great classics from a from a time's gone past like it's chunked all of his incredible cinephilia into one you know real potent dose so you know i i think that that's it's it's definitely true and i think everyone um Everyone, you know, Spielberg, uh, Liz Hanna, who co-wrote The Post, was on the show mm-hmm. um, in earlier in our run. And, you know, she talked about how big a fan that Spielberg himself was of All the President's Men. And mm-hmm. the, the guys who are making Spotlight, they only, like, their language is like, it's All the President's Men. Like, you know, they, totally. it's, it's there. And even, you know, Fincher, um, for our next project, which we are looking at doing in, on One Eight Minute Productions, is Zodiac is like, even Roger Ebert called that the all the president's men of serial killer movies. So, you know, I feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of that essence that people sort of, I think have retroactively gone back and gone, okay, this is, and it's now since 76, it's like the pinnacle journalism movie. So everyone has to contend with it. We like doing a mafia movie post the Godfather. Like it sucks, but you have to contend with that art when you're making the next thing. Cause it's, it's so seminal and, uh, and things like that. But Let's get to better topics. Robert Redford could not look better almost any time in his entire career, or Hoffman really, with the hair, um, than this movie and the amount of corduroy and large wide ties um, really, really does um, make you feel bad as a guy who now is just sitting in like a sweatshirt in my podcast studio, (laughs) not looking as good as Robert Redford every day in this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty unparalleled. I love a good, um, you know, a good tuck-in situation when you can, like, tuck the shirt in, and then that's yes. very, you know, and, like, the, the floppy hair is great. Oh. Um, he's kind of, like, he's got, like, Bambi eyes in this movie a lot. Yes. So, yeah, he's, very uh, attractive. Especially at the beginning of the movie when he's trying to get some information out, when he's trying to get some information out about that. Um, one of the things also, and I think it sort of came up in your um, – in your piece on knives out was just the sort of the structure the the sort of structural perfection. And like, also it's a bit weird because obviously it doesn't, it doesn't do the things that we want to do in this movie, but that, that sort of structural perfection to know that like, we're going to just kind of continue to have this sense of delayed gratification, even though we are going to be making those moves. It, it does have a lot in common with a mystery thriller because you are putting together mm-hmm. the pieces. Um, but in, in that, I think you used the great phrase. It's not so much a who done it, but a how done it. And so when I read that phrase, um, when we were about to do the show, I was like, that's very much this movie. It's like, these guys are doing a, a continual how done it, but it has a delayed gratification because ultimately you're not, you're, you're only getting to like sort of the tip of the iceberg. And then the movie sort of crescendos and ends with like, the bookends of history kind of speak for themselves with this movie. We don't need to, you know, show you Nixon being 
resigning, we can just show you on a teletype. Um, but I, I kept thinking about that. It is a how done it. Like how do these guys do it? How do these guys mm-hmm. do it? And, and, and I almost want to say that like in a strange way, this is like one of a third shift on that paradigm, like a third branch on that tree that says like a why done it? Like why? Like why do these people do it? Especially with the amount of power and influence they already had secured that they're now messing around trying to spy on political partners when Nixon had like a landslide victory in 72. <laughs> Yeah, the, the comparison to Knives Out is so funny, but I don't think it's wrong necessarily, especially, be, or I mean, I don't think it's wrong, especially because like in the first part, like so much of the first part of that movie and all the president's men is spent convincing people that there's something to figure out, you know, like there's so yes. much, especially like in the beginning of the movie where they're like, no, this is nothing, this is nothing, this is nothing. And it keeps, you know, they keep trying to squash it and then stuff just keeps kind of adding up until they can't really deny it anymore. But even just like the moment, like the can't deny it moment comes pretty much at the very end. Like it, it takes a lot of machination to like get there. Yeah. And, but you know, the glorious thing about knives out is that they, they want you there for that, that glorious money shot ending of Anna de Armas, like in a robe at a coffee mug, <laughs> like standing in this huge Agatha Christie mansion, looking down on this, you know, gaggle of like desperate people who've all sort of backstabbed each other into oblivion. Um, and yeah, so I think that, you know, the difference is you can't have a who or how done it without deep. I think that you, you're required to give me, you know, we demand more satisfaction, I suppose, but like, you know, because you need the closure cause it's not something necessarily that's famous or no one's really done mm-hmm. followed a mystery where you actually know how it all ends. Um, um, without sort of showing you, you know, with some satisfaction that it's coming. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think that the president's has the luxury of like every single person in the whole world knew that Nixon had resigned by then. And it was very significant. So they could play a little bit more artful and delicate with how they sort of uh, brought that to life in the movie. Mm-hmm. Another, um, yeah. Talking about this, another funny, strange comparison is maybe the new horror film host. It's um, a new one that came out. Um, it's on Shutter, I'm pretty sure. And it's a clean hour. It's like a seance gone wrong over Zoom. So it was made, you know, during COVID. Um, but it like works so well as an hour because the first, what would have been the first 30 minutes is removed because we don't need the setup of COVID. You know, we're all here. Yes. So like being able to tell a story and just not needing to, you know, set up those extra things because everyone already knows. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to see how it actually plays out kind of 2021 when people do that because totally. like the thing that will be really annoying is when when they do the covid setup bit and you're like listen, we saw contagion, we know how this works. <laughs> we don't need you to tell us, just put people in masks, getting depressed, having sort of the space yeah. madness on earth because that's kind of like I feel like there's a few of those, you know, host sounds like one but like a few space madness on earth, iso madness. There's going to be a litany of those coming, um, coming up. How about we watch this minute? We're at the 90th minute. Wow. We are, you know, you talk about a tight 90 or a tight hour. We are an hour and a half through this movie, 90 minutes into what is ultimately 136, 37 minutes um, of a project. So we are definitely flying towards the finish line now. Thank you so much for being a part of the show so far. Kelsey and I are going to watch the 90th minute, um, which is, one hour, 29 minutes exactly on your dial um, on Blu-ray or on HBO Max. There's only one version, so that's good. We're going to watch that minute together now. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. I believe in Richard Nixon. I worked in the White House for four years, and so did my wife. And what happened on June 17th, I don't think the president knew anything about. Is it possible that some of his people might have known? I'm not sure about that. Do you think the truth will ever come out at the trial? It's another thing I'm not sure about. Why? Well... Obviously, because certain people lied to the prosecutor. No, we were never told flat out, don't talk. But but the message was clear, though. In other words, by their very silence, there was a cover-up. Well, they didn't urge us to come forward and tell the truth. They, meaning the White House? Well, the committee's not an independent operation. Everything's cleared with the White House. And I don't think that the FBI or the prosecutors understand that. Now, that report on the cash in the creep safe, that $350,000, is no, that a correct? more. Was that a correct figure? No, it was closer to one million. 
And as treasurer, you could release those funds? When so ordered. We don't know the names of the people who... I don't know what it is about Stephen Collins's character, but the more and more that I watch this, and it's come up with Isaac Butler, who's a guest on the show very recently as well, there's just something about him that is... He is dancing around every question. He's dancing around every inquiry. And it is a very calculating performance as Hugh Sloan to deflect and to make things more complicated. So you, you see here in mm-hmm. this wonderful minute, which actually begins with the extended double take physical moment of the revelation that Bob Woodward's a Republican <laughs> for the first time in this moment. <laughs> all, mo- all time favorite moment in the movie. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorites <laughs> or two. It's so great. But uh, yeah, just the dance of Hugh Sloan is something I really love in this because it's like, this guy, it, it becomes clearer and clearer to me with every viewing that this guy absolutely knows that there was political malfeasance going on, hence why he's, you know, he's out of there. He's clearly confided in his wife. Mm-hmm. Enough for her to say, like, we've got to get the hell out of here. And is it continually playing like this protect myself at all costs mode. Um, it's a really terrific minute for that for these guys interacting because they're so much more relaxed now. I think that they're now on the pathway of actually finding some of these big things out, Kelsey, but yeah, just a really phenomenal little minute. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. It's, it's almost like he's answering through negation, right? Like, yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Everything he's saying is, you know, not, it's all, it's all like a denial, but an answer through the denial, I suppose. Yeah, because they they ask they ask follow up questions. Was there a cover up? No, we were never told. Ex- and then he goes to like the company line. No, we were never told explicitly to lie. And then the guys go, but in your silence, that sort of implies that there's a cover up. No, that's not necessarily true. And then they're like, so which is it? <laughs> like you know, sort of a puzzle, a lot of puzzled looks. Which is it? Is it that you were told to lie, or is it that you weren't told to lie? And so yeah, I think there's a great there's just a great wrestle going on here. And he's, you know, obviously for folks listening, uh, Stephen Collins has had his own controversies in his career later on. We're, we're not going to dive too deep into that. You can research it and Google it. Um, uh, uh, some, some, um, not very nice stuff. So I don't usually like to direct people to it. So we don't, we won't have to talk too much about his career, but I just, but I just think that one of the, the phenomenal things that he does here is, He's a guy who seemingly gets these guys in with open arms to say, please come and take all this information from me and let me help you. And then at the same time mm-hmm. is, is just making them dance around in circles and follow things up in strange ways and play weird games to get information. And it just keeps feeling like this guy, what, why, what, why do you keep doing this <laughs> every single time? It's, it actually becomes quite frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Really great scene. What are, what are some of the other things that leap out for you around this scene and around these moments? You said that you know, the Republican double take is your favorite part in the movie. What's, what's leaping out <laughs> for you in this whole scene? Well, I think coming off of the scene with, it's the bookkeeper, right? The scene of yeah. the bookkeeper. bookkeeper um, yeah. And having seen like the, the way they, you know, plotted and kind of just um, got confirmation by saying, you know, a Porter's name without, having her disagree with them. And I think they pull that off a couple times in this scene too, yes. you know, where they just like throw something out and um, you know, it, it kind of lands and they know that like it's confirmation through silence, which is like the same thing as like um, lying through silence, covering up through silence a yes. little bit. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an incredible dance. And he also manages to like offhandedly give them like that the money's closer to a million, that there's like five people who had access to the money. Like he is, you know, giving them small doors, but you know, not letting, not really giving them the key to open them, I suppose. Yeah. There's, um, and yeah, I think by this time as well, I just also love the, they're better at the dance. They're better at the the dance Mm -hmm. between who's Mm going to ask the questions and how the questions are going to be asked. And he's like, and the, the practiced confusion, so yeah, there was three hundred fifty thousand. Was it three hundred fifty thousand dollars in the same? <laughs> and then, and then, and then, obviously, Bernstein's like, "That was higher, high." And just does. I love the little, just pointing, gesture up. Like, was it higher? Like, very puzzled. Oh, I don't know. I don't know anything here. I'm not sure. And then, no, it's more like a million. And you sort of, everything then is the repressed, glee 
of new bits of information mm-hmm. that are very juicy. Cause like, Oh, a million dollars. That's a great head. Like that's a great lead into the next, you know, next story that we're going to write. So you said about women, weird, uh, weird women, like uh, that was <laughs> one of your beats. There are so many great mm-hmm. women and I love one of the women in this movie who we've just interacted with is just one of my favorites in this whole bit. And it's Meredith Baxter's Debbie Sloan, because she kind of is, you know, for this guy who's weird and evasive and protective, um, knowing that the position that he's in and basically what he's about to say almost guarantees that his political career is over. Um, But she is, you know, a pregnant woman who's so uncompromising going, A, you have to leave and B, this is an honest house. You can talk to these guys. You need to, you know, you need to be able to clear your name because this is an honest house. And that's the most important thing, like her integrity of, I, we did not sign up for this. Um, I think she, she has a massive stamp on every scene that happens with this guy. And anytime that he actually stops being evasive, I feel like she's either in the room or her, her mm-hmm. presence and her influence is implied that this is what he should be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that great moment between her and Redford when he kind of like overplays his hand and is like, we're here for your husband. We're here to, you know, it's for his own good. And she's like, no, it's not. Like, not. you know, don't don't pretend. Don't be, a, you know, a shitty journalist. Like, I know why you're here kind of thing. It, it's, yeah, she's she's great. I hadn't really thought a lot about her before, but. Yeah, there's, there's uh, she's, it, uh, as part of, the weird method and how I undertake this show. I usually watch, you know, the preceding sort of 10 minutes before any scene that we're about to talk about. And then the following 10, and that's kind of my like little personal pre-prep, whether you're watching it actively or, you know, really scrutinizing the minute or just having it on. So you kind of get the context of where we're at in the movie and doing this show in such a chronology. It, um, I, you know, it feels like sometimes I do double prep. So I haven't had to like scrutinize it all over the map. You know, I'm watching in the same air at the same time and we're going through, and I've just been, I've relished her because especially in how evasive he gets in the scene, which kind of puts a big question mark on the whole exchange. Like he is meant to be this honorable man. The bookkeeper's already said that he's the guy, like he's a great guy and he listened to his, his pregnant wife and had the, had the backbone to get out of there. But he's still, there's something great about the performance that he's still withholding. And that I think that that is mm-hmm. for me is, there's a great tension with her. This is an honest house. And he's just every physical gesture, the distance that he keeps from the guys, the, even the chair, it's kind of the chair even looks like an evil, like a Dr. Evil, <laughs> evil, mad scientist, like bond villain esque something. And obviously it's probably just seventies decor just all around and round, but it's just that like big master of the house chair, the way that he's positioned. Um, it just, it just reeks of like, I'm in power. I'm, I'm used to playing this uh, bureaucratic dance of making sure that I can say everything that I need to say and articulate it in a certain way mm-hmm. that gets me in the least amount of trouble. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And like thinking back over the scene too. Yeah. She, she sets the tone for that interaction, right? Like yes. in so many ways, like her telling them, like, don't come in here and lie about why you're here. Like you're going to come in and we're going to figure this out, but don't pretend like this is for anyone's good. Yeah. Don't pretend that this is where just so for shits and giggles. Like this is the people who it benefits the most is you, perhaps the American people. Um, definitely the American people, but also it comes at the cost <laughs> to anyone who, who is talking to them. And I think it's also good for that to be made real after they've had such, you know, I think that that is such the delicate, intricate balance of this movie where you have a colossal win with a confidential source like the bookkeeper. Mm-hmm. They publish things. The momentum of the movie shifts. They get to get in front of Sloan because ultimately there's accusations flying around and his name has potentially been flying around, but he's a person who's been ordered to do things. And so it's in his best interest to do it. But then when they come back around, the cost is always reminded of them. Like with the bookkeeper, they'll see you. I'm in danger. And I think that 
that's the whole blind spot that these guys have is just how much danger they may have been in or how much danger they've put people in throughout the movie. So it's always great that this movie does these great ebbs and flows, almost like an erratic heart rate where in one second, it's like you're up really high and you're gleeful that they've got a break. And then in the next moment, it's like, there's no benefit for anyone except for you. And it's just this great moral continuing moral quandary of this whole thing that they have to contend with. Yeah, which makes Redford and Hoffman so enjoyable because they manage to play it off. Like a lot of times, like they're just kind of like these naive guys bumbling along until they find like the clues to put together when really they're, you know, obviously a lot more canny than that. But they do have that kind of like willful innocence and like Redford's Bambi eyes, like I said. Like it's very easy to believe that they are, you know, like kind of low-key naive about what they're doing. Definitely. Yeah, I think it's way more fun for this story and maybe other stories um, is there's definitely a place in journalism, the journalism or newsroom genre for the curmudgeon-y, cynical older journalist who's seen it all. But um, it's how that is offset with less experienced journalists who get to um, get to really cut their teeth on like a massive case. You know, I think about Rachel McAdams' character in Spotlight She's already an experienced mm-hmm. journalist. She's already been on the beat for a really long time, but the, the, uh, the magnitude of what they're dealing with in that has gives her a great mini arc in that story. Um, and even Ruffalo's character in spotlight, who is sort of a hardened and experienced journalist, the magnitude of the story even changes him. He's like, Oh my God, like what the hell is going Like what the hell is going on? Like, I, you know, I can't believe I've had to fight so hard to get freedom of information and things like that to, to, to get my hands on like, evidence um for this sort Mm -hmm. of thing because uh, of that so yeah look it's it's really um it's it's a really delicate balance that is played but these guys as we're we're kind of hitting a moment so much of this movie has been about both of them having deficiencies and not quite being the woodward and bernstein that they eventually become to solve this story and i feel like now we've crested a wave in the previous couple of scenes and now that like we're actually every Mm -hmm. scene that they're in from now you see them be quite deliberate in everything that they're doing, which is and, and, until they get kind of run through the ringer by this very character confirming a story, which nearly almost gets them kicked off the story later on in the film. Spoilers. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's just one of those things that <laughs> it feels like we're now starting to see, we're now starting to see these guys for who they really are, like the myth of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like they, they're, they finally grown into like, the names that we're all familiar with into the Woodstein. <laughs> exactly. This is their becoming Woodstein moment. This right now, like this, <laughs> this exchange. So yeah, it's, it's sorry. Oh no, you go, please. Oh, I was just going to say, um, there's a version of this movie. That's like a coming of age with us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you, uh, one of the films I mentioned that you covered 20th century women, you know, there's that, you know, in, in, in sort of weird ways, um, you know, these young naive guys ultimately uh, have the biggest breaks in their story and the, and the most sort of moral takes um, and, and the biggest sort of wells of information other than deep throat himself um, come from women. Like they're guided by women in this story that, you know, whether it's Sally Aitken um, whether it's uh, Kate, you know, uh, Sally Aiken, who played uh, play by Penny Fuller, whether it's Debbie Sloan in this minute, whether it's the bookkeeper whose real name is Judy Toback Miller, but they just call the bookkeeper in the script, whether it's um, uh, Lindsay Krauss's character, Kay Eddie, the whole time they've got these women who have got these like pivotal moments who give them big chunks of information who keep the story moving um, and kind of know the cost of it. And mm-hmm. they're kind of being educated along the way before they finally... Hmm that wall so technically on a like aesthetic level on like an a formal level you've got quite eclectic taste from especially a lot of the stuff that i've poured through preparing for this what on an aesthetic level on a formal level like does it what was your most what was your latest revisit what was the things that really kind of did were there any things that sort of stood out as far as those things that became influential in other films or you've seen littered through other films like what what we what were those moments or those or those you know, stylistic flurries that you're like oh that's something i've seen now everywhere because of this film hmm. Hmm. that's a good question i think a lot of what i 
kind of picked up on or honed in on is just how subtle a lot of it is like to to really like you know hook into the story you have to like really be watching um which i think is something that not a lot of films especially recent films can say um because people you know always have their attention all over the place all the time second screens Um, always yeah totally yeah Yeah. and i think that i mean there is a pretty deliberate blandness to it you know it's very much like fluorescent lights khakis you know it's it's very um i mean again like like spotlight very i think very similar color tones throughout um but that, of course, like it kind of like steps back on the visuals a little bit to forefront the mystery of what they're figuring out, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, Robert Redford. I did, um, <laughs> I tweeted out how hot he was after watching Butch Cassidy for the first time. Yes. Another um, Goldman script. So that was, yeah, yeah. So that was a fun one for me to see and then to see this one and see how, I don't know. They're not, not unconnected, I guess. <laughs> no, definitely not dissimilar. Like, I mean, you, the William Goldman kind of reinvents or invents the concept of buddy cop, like buddy comedies, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, obviously with buddy cowboys, buddy crook, um, actually with, um, Butch and Sundance and it, that template is, you know, I mean, we could talk for another hour just about how that has been steadily ripped off for decades. Um, but in the same way, his the the interplay between these two guys he knows is so important to the to how this movie mm-hmm. will go. He knows that you can go with a movie and not know what's going on if the central relationship is really dynamic and interesting. And so I think that that's much the same with Butch and Sundance because there's a conflict, there's a tension, there's different personal ethoses, Mm -hmm. there's different, you know, there's different barriers to push through. And I think that, you know, he's got a great, he has a great time playing with these two sort of what are now like archetypal characters, waspy integrity, sort of like, um, you know, dogged street savvy smarts and having those two things like bash against each other. And, and so, yeah, that, that, that ad- in essence is like, you know, he, he kind of invented that and then people just have ran with it since for about 50 years. So it's like it, 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 the similarities are way more there than the differences. Totally. And also like, I mean, specifically with how the president's been not feeling the need to really go into Woodstein's personal history, you know, to just, um, I, I think that if someone were to make this film today, there would definitely be like tense scenes at home. Like, um, you're not spending enough time with me that those kinds of scenes to kind of like buff up the characters. But I mean, they just didn't feel the need to because they knew the way that the characters interacted with the story would be their character kind of i don't know if i just want to flat out say but like i hate it i can't stand really? i can't stand backstory about personal oh, yeah. drama that is forefronted before you get to the story you know i just feel like it's really lazy because there's so much there's so i feel like there's so much you can do like if you want to say that marriage is having trouble I don't want to see the marriage having trouble before we get to the story. Or maybe it's that like whole like concept of media res. Like I want to see us in the story. I want to see the characters doing their work or doing the thing that they're doing. And then those other tendrils to complicate and to make you have questions about them later. And like, I know that right now I'm speaking as the person who can unequivocally say I've seen heat more than any other human being on the planet, except for maybe the people who edited it but it's something that is great in heat, which is that you are introduced in media res to these characters. They're doing their job. And then the weird parts of their life that either are positives or negatives are going to make those things problematic. Like the Shahela's family with Val Kilmer and Ashley Judd and, and, and Charlene's affair and those things that are putting big question marks and black holes and like potential trapdoors into what will ultimately be how they execute their next big score. I love that because you get to see the backstory but it's in the context of it's a human drama where the messiness of people can mess with how you want to execute a plan. And so mm-hmm. if, if we like spent 10 minutes, like here's Bernstein riding to work or like betting a, an attractive lady and then riding his bike to work. And then like Redford's Woodward, like 
being, you know, sort of a loner and like reading and, you know, like talking to family on a payphone or whatever. Like it, it just feels like, it just feels like it would be so rote and we, there would be those moments you'd grow so tired of so quickly, but like within 10 minutes we're in the courthouse in this movie and you know, it's, it doesn't take long. Like you see him in bed and it's like, that's his, his window into his personal life, into both their personal lives that Bernstein's overdue on a story and he's late in the office and Redford's not cause he hasn't been writing anything that's that important. So he's asleep in bed and he gets a phone call for an assignment. <laughs> like go, go to this place. I need you there now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause he's the sort of young cadet essentially, or like younger guy who's, you know, who gets the crappy Saturday morning, go down to the courthouse assignment. No. Yeah. And I think you're totally right about it being lazy writing to have that kind of backstory, just to like, you know, add some extra flavor to a character. I think that um, it's something you see in fiction a lot too. Like, you know, if a story is over reliant on backstory, then what is it really even saying? You know, like it has to be able to stand on its own, own legs. There's so many great, like little flashbacks that can happen. Like you can just have a flashback. Like there's a, there's an opportunity, like that's why flashbacks exist. (laughs) You know, like it's, it's, it's like the great moment in once upon a time in Hollywood where Cliff's, fixing um, Rick Santana on his roof and is obviously, you know, speaking of thirst traps, um, Brad Pitt, uh, the kind of the, our generation's <laughs> Robert Redford, you know, de- de-robes and stands up there about to, you know, sort of have a contemplative drag on a cigarette on top of a roof. And when he does that, it sort of flashes back to why, what was the issue? And, and you know, has that great confrontation with Mike Mose, Bruce Lee. Oh yeah. That's a great scene. And, and, but that's the whole flashback is just wonderful though. It's like, it feels like if you really, if there's something that's so chunky and so, uh, so like undeniable that you're like, Oh my God, I need to have this in the movie. And like, you imagine Quentin, like I, I want this scene so bad for the layers because it actually goes flashback and flashback. And you know, there's a couple of bits and pieces that happen there because it goes into a flashback and then flashes back to, Cliff's last interaction with his wife but it's like if we do this this will give you the backstory that you need on this character but up until that point like we've been in the movie for like 30 40 minutes now like we don't we haven't seen any of this it hasn't mattered um it's now that we're more Mm -hmm. curious and we've grown close to the character that we want to see why he hasn't you know gone off and been the super successful guy like what's what's been the challenges in his life and i just feel like so much of that these guys don't need it by the end of the movie, you know, really who these guys are and who they, who they're going to be and what their potential is. Um, and I feel like, yeah, that's, that's, that's a real skill for the restraint to trust your actors, to know that they can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and speaking of, um, Brad Pitt, um, there was a moment last year in our bright wall, dark room Slack channel where I realized that he's hot. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't quite realized before. Um, So like after watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I went on like a whole thing where I just watched all of his movies um, and just like updated them like, hey, he's still hot in this movie too. Um, I called it my Prad bit. um, Prad bit. Yeah. It it ended with Ad Astra, um, which he was also pretty hot in. I was going to say, that's that's harsh. He looks very hot in uh, Ad Astra. (laughs) But he's also, you know, he's with Redford in Spy Game. There's, you know, there's lots of hot, there's lots of Brad Pitt hotness. What, where did you, where did you crest and say that it was the hottest he, he was ever alive? I mean, honestly, I think once upon a time in Hollywood, I think that like, he just, I mean, even if he murdered someone in that movie, even if he murdered his wife, <laughs> and he, he made up for it by bludgeoning to death some Manson, Mansonites. Exactly. It's, it's karma. Backwards karma? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's one of those things. It's really, fu- it's really funny. Um, uh, the prospect of, I kind of think this is the hottest Redford, and Brad Pitt gets so often compared to Redford. I'm trying to think of like what the Brad Pitt role in the middle of his career that this is, and so it's kind of like, is it one of the like, is it an Oceans movie? Is it like mm. Fight Club because of the whole Tyler Durden thing and like the different looks and just having such a distinct style? Um, and obviously being able to get his kid off many times in that movie. Um, so yeah, they'd be my votes. It'd be like Rusty in Ocean's Eleven, who's just eating everything under the sun. And then, um, and then maybe that as his absolute hottest. 
Yeah, I would. I'm sure that it exists, but if it doesn't, I'd love to see a supercut of Brad Pitt chewing gum, which I think he does in every movie. Start it <laughs> now. Like a big old wad. <laughs> I, I have no time. I have too many podcasts. I cannot do it. But I think if you if you want to start it right now, um, I'll definitely be a consumer of your Brad Pitt supercut. That's for sure. My my quarantine project. Yeah, yeah. everyone needs a choir project. <laughs> everyone needs it. Um, we talked a little bit about Fargo at the beginning of the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. When it comes to something like a docudrama, like what do you think? What do you think that makes it makes a movie like this so deeply successful when it comes to that docudrama element? Because I think that that's something that I am also interested in. Because you can really go like a high art version, uh, social networks. I mean, I'm talking like sort of, mm. you know, social mm-hmm. networks and, and Zodiacs and, and all the president's men. And then you can totally backflip and go to, you know, really trashy movie of the weeks that are on like Lifetime. What, what's, what to you in some of that stuff, like especially looking at something like the Fargo series, what to you is the ingredient for how do you make something that mm. is a truth-telling and that has immediacy and that it stays meaningful. Like what's, what, what, what to you is the ingredient to make that successful? The, the first thing that comes to mind is a level of specificity. Um, and just like, and I think in that, I mean, also like in like the small lines, like the kind of like, you know, what might be considered throwaway lines, but are all actually like very telling like when they're walking up to um sloan's house and what hoffman says you know all these houses can't believe you know the darkness inside and redford's like i can um you know and that's like just like a microsecond and then also like the i don't want a cookie line like (laughs) um like i i think it's something down to like set dressing and like actors that can really deliver compelling understated performances you know, and I, and I think that there's something, I mean, specifically with Redford and Hoffman, like throughout the film, you kind of learn how to watch them or like how to read them in those moments when they're doing the interviews um, in the same way that, you know, they're also figuring out how to do those interviews along the way. Um, yeah, I think it's just something very, I don't know. I think, yeah, I think good writing. <laughs> just good writing. <laughs> I, just I think good writing, write good, it well. <laughs> yeah, good, good writing, but also like you said, I, I really like what you said about understated performances because I think that the 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 threat always when you're inhabiting someone is to tackle an impression rather than an essence. And I think that mm-hmm. we can all we can all gleefully sort of be happy with um, the fact that Bernstein and Woodward don't look like Redford and Hoffman, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like it's not a deal breaker at any point of the movie and sometimes it is it actually yeah i hadn't even considered i don't know what they look like <laughs> and yeah. i hadn't considered looking them up because it's yeah that's not something that came to mind although a lot of times i do that when i'm watching like based on true films. yeah i think if, if someone has too many like weird affectations or something like that you're gonna go what was this real person like is this what they were like um <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's like, I think sometimes you can get an Ashton Kutcher jobs movie, you know, like, whereas if you look at the, the Danny Boyle, um, and I'm always getting the confused with which one it is like the Danny Boyle, Michael Fassbender, um, and Aaron Sorkin, like Steve jobs or whatever it was called or whatever that, oh, sort yeah. of, that, yeah. that triptych thing was. It's like, we all know that Steve jobs does not look anything like Michael Fassbender, but Michael Fassbender seems to like, it's, he's delivering a more urgent, an intense, like hard ass of a performance that you you're way more in sort of enraptured with like what stages of this guy's life is it at rather than just constantly looking at Ashton Kutcher going, this is just the greatest lookalike stupid performance I've ever seen. Like you just get so distracted by it. So I think that that's one of the major challenges for me mm-hmm. is like, you just know, and I think that's what you're talking about. It's like when you're talking about a docudrama, you're not getting taken out of it. It has to, you has to like, you have to be able to maintain the reality of what it's going through. And if you're not immediately looking at what these guys look like, I think that's probably a testament to, I don't need to, because I'm in, 
Like mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not distracted by it. I'm compelled by what they're doing and saying. And then, you know, when the movie's over, if I feel like it, I can, I can jump into it. Yeah. It kind of occurs to me that there's, um, and this is probably a very basic thing to say, but like that there is a relationship between like adapting a true story and acting in that true story a little bit. Like they're, I mean, they're both obviously adaptations, right? Like, yes. um, like you can't tell a story one, two, three, just like, cause if you tell a true story in the way it actually happened, it's going to be boring. So you have Super to boring. embellish a little bit. You have to like, yeah. And I think it's the same thing with actors and, um, you know, their, their versions of those characters as well. Yeah. Uh, they just have to be ready. They have to be ready to, um, like they have to be ready to sort of surrender their own, stuff doing it they've got to kind of serve it's only about that service i think um is what you're talking about yeah yeah. and yeah not i think that that's the key for me is like not being too wedded to like oh look at his mole like like look at this person's mole on their face and the makeup (laughs) but also the understated detail of like wow look at redford going left-handed because that was Woodward. Like Redford's not left-handed and having to write left-handed and dial on phones. It's like, that's a great little <laughs> method. He's not a method trained actor. It's a great little detail um, that he brought to the role. And it's just one of those things where I think when you're looking at that, there's there's those touches and things like that, that if you really want to dive in and go, oh, look, look at them doing it. But the foundations of the performance aren't that showy crap. It's like this guy conveying in an essence of what this person is rather than, and it's the same with, you know, Collins or Sloan. In essence, what this evasive guy is like, like bearing the lead, bearing the lead for us early that we know mm-hmm. that this guy might not be trustworthy. Like this scene to us later on buries the lead really to the, like the whole weird, like I'm going to count to 10 and we're going to do this and then say, oh, I confirm this or not, didn't confirm it. Or I never got asked by the grand jury. It's like, oh, God's like, why couldn't you have said that at any one of our dialogues? You know, I feel like this whole scene helps with that. So yeah, it's just about in essence, in essence that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, slow and being slippery. And with that lovely slippery Sloan alliteration, Kelsey Fjord finishes up on our show. Kels, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Um, if you want to follow Kelsey, the best place you can find her is on Twitter, which is at Kels Fjord, which is K-E-L-S-F-J-O-R-D or go to Bright Wall Dark Room. I've also linked in the post for the show on oneheatminute.com and in the description of the show podcast, um, her author page. You can check out all of her great writings there. Thank you so much for listening again this week to another Mammoth Week at All the President's Minutes. Um, On Twitter at ATPMPod is the best place you can find us. I am one Blake minute across Twitter and Instagram. If you want to support the show and you've got some dosh, um, for those of you out there who can, please, uh, there's donation links in the description, but we appreciate you sharing, retweeting, reviewing, anything you can do to support. We love you. Thank you so much for listening to the show and uh, more great stuff coming along in One Heat Minute Productions feed very soon.